I want to invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you're using the Bible that's there in the pew, it's on page 333. If you're using your own Bible, I leave it to you to find Nehemiah chapter 1. And then if you're using your phone, the Bible app, uh, we'll have a slide up just a second that'll tell you how to navigate on the YouVersion Bible app to Grace Lutheran Church. And then when you open that up, it'll pop right to our scripture this morning. We have been going through since January, and I, I know I repeat myself on this, as does Pastor John, but if we do have visitors or guests, I want you to kind of understand where we've been. Since January, we've been in something called the story, and the story, which looks like this, is a narrative condensed version of the Bible. It's taking the whole story of the Bible and putting it in narrative form. And we've been doing this along with a Bible reading plan as this year we want to get through the whole of the scripture. Some people have never read the whole Bible in their lifetime. And so we're seeking to have that be something that you can say you've done and if you have before to go a little deeper. And this morning we come to the end of the first half of the story, the end of what is known as the Old Testament in our Bibles. And that really is going to be the theme this morning. I want you to just hold on to that. The theme of everything we're going to talk about is endings. And it's specifically the reality that we face endings all the time in our life. We face them. We have to deal with them whether we want to or not. And specifically what I want you to hold on to as we dive in this morning is this idea of how do we deal with the, re the reality that sometimes happens where the ending we get isn't the one we were hoping for where the ending we get isn't the one we were hoping for. Before we start talking about endings, for the sake of just wrapping things up, let us go back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created a majestic and beautiful universe. That's where we started. He formed and breathed life into the center of all of it, the very reflection of the image of his glory, us, humankind. And all was very good. We're told that again and again until... Humanity chose to disobey God, to go their own way, if you will, rather than the Lord's way. Paradise was lost. Peace was broken. Sin became a habit, and death got real. However, in the midst of all these consequences that happened right from the start, a divine promise of rescue, of salvation, was also given back in Genesis 3. The seedbed of this assurance became an aged and infertile couple. Do you remember them? Named Abraham and Sarah. Out of barrenness, once again, God created life. The Lord established a family. Then he formed a people. And eventually he built a nation. Through famine and bondage, do you recall? They were delivered. For four, through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness... They were carried into the promised land. Despite a repeated cycle of falling away, coming back and falling away again, the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob became the nation of Israel. And the Lord made his home, how can we forget this, his temple among his people. God did this. God did so even though in their demand for a king, his people failed to recognize his presence his sovereignty in their lives. Kings the people wanted and kings the people got. As we've seen, a few were good, but most were bad, just as God had warned them. Wisdom was asked for and granted. Prosperity was sought and it came. But both, however, were wasted as a once united kingdom fractured from within and ultimately split in two, the north and the south. Divided against each other 
And together, surrounded by the threat of rival nations, did not draw the people back to their true king. They paid lip service to God. They went through the motions of sacrifice and service, but it was all religious theater. In truth, the people were willing to bow down before any would-be God, any idol that told them nothing needed to change, that everything was going to be all right. But this was not the word of the Lord. Divine messengers were sent, prophets, we've talked about them. Their lone voices penetrated the hypocrisy and denial of the people. Filled with the spirit of God, the prophets implored Israel to turn around from her unjust and wicked ways. They pointed to a better and gracious gracious future only God could orchestrate, even as they warned of the inevitable and unavoidable consequences of present decisions if they remained unchanged. Everyone heard the message but no one listened. The kingdom of the north fell first to the Assyrians. And then later, the south kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. The walls of Jerusalem were breached. The temple of the Lord was burned to the ground. The people set apart to be a blessing to all nations became a people without a nation. Exiles, homeless refugees, prisoners of war. They lost it all, but not everything. God's covenant promise of salvation remained. Decades later, as power changed hands among nations, as the Babylonians fell to the Persians, the people of Israel were given permission to go home. And it was just as God had promised it would be. They could go home. And that's where we've been these last few weeks. And as you've heard, many went back. Most, however, remained where they were settled. Pastor John took us through the story of most, through the story of Esther. But some went back, and those who went back returned, they came with high hopes. This was their opportunity. This was their opportunity to rebuild what was lost. This was their moment to start fresh and to see in their rebuilding, in beginning again, perhaps God's promise fulfilled in all its fullness. Not just coming back, but all the things that God had promised fulfilled in their lifetime. And this morning as you're in Nehemiah chapter one, I wanted you just to get a sense, a taste of that anticipation, of that hope through this beautiful prayer that Nehemiah offers as he opens the book. So if you have it open, read with me from Nehemiah chapter one. The words of Nehemiah, son of Halakai. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. 
Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, as we're looking at the last part of this of the story in the old, of what's the Old Testament. Ezra and Nehemiah is what we're looking at primarily. It's important that you remember, we kind of went there a couple of weeks ago. There are three key figures that we talk about when we look at this part of the story. Three key figures who have in common this desire to come back and to see Israel restored, rebuilt. But they, all three of them are coming at it from a different passion, a different focus, a different perspective. You got an introduction to Nehemiah. Two weeks ago, you got an introduction to Zerubbabel. There was Zerubbabel, there was Nehemiah, and there was Ezra. And again, they all had in common coming back and wanting to see Israel rebuilt and restored, but they each had a unique passion about what they were focused on. And I want to just kind of unpack that for you. Zerubbabel, who we looked at two weeks ago in the first part of Ezra, was a regional governor who brought the first wave of people back, and his focus was on the reconstruction of the temple. Some 80 years later, the second individual is Ezra, and he's in the second half of the book named after him. Ezra was a scholar and a priest. Ezra led a second wave of exiles, of returnees. 80 years later, his eye was on bringing religious reform and spiritual revival. And he sought to do this by reintroducing worship practices that had been forgotten or had been sort of compromised. He also sought to bring this back by Bible study, by getting people back into the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then Nehemiah. A little bit after Ezra's arrival, Nehemiah, who was once a cupbearer to the king, approaches that king and gets, gets appointed by the king of Persia as the next governor of the region. And his focus, he's a contemporary of Ezra, so he's around the same time Ezra is, but his focus in leading a third and final wave of people back, his focus is dedicated to refortifying the walls and gates surrounding the city of Jerusalem. Temple, Torah, walls. Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. All three of these men also have in common that in each of their individual pursuits, they faced physical, communal, and political opposition. They faced physical, communal, and political opposition even though they had governmental backing and even resources for their efforts. Yet they all faced opposition. Despite this, despite the delays that they encountered, they each saw the work to which they had dedicated themselves finally accomplished. Temple rebuilt, Religious reform and spiritual revival initiated, walls refortified along with the gates. And at the end of Nehemiah, it's this incredible moment where everything has come together. It's all been accomplished, and they mark their achievements. Zerubbabel has long since gone, but Ezra and Nehemiah mark the achievements of what that they three have done together by publicly giving glory to God. It's this incredible picture painted at the end of Nehemiah. In particular, Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people in this worship service that's so epic and so grand. If you haven't read this part of the story yet, you need to go back and read it at the end of Nehemiah. It's a worship service so epic and grand that the writer actually says that it is so incredible that not since the days of Joshua 
had the Israelites celebrated like this. That's a long time. Not since the days of Joshua had they celebrated like this. What took place? Ezra, the priest, the scribe, he leads this marathon Bible study, reading and teaching the people from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, what's known as the law of God. It's a marathon Bible study because he teaches them for seven days straight. And believe it or not, for seven days straight, the people listened attentively. They're fixated as he teaches for seven days on the Bible. And as he's teaching, we're told they at different points will shout out, amen, amen. And amen means let it be so. Yes, let it be so. Seven day marathon Bible study. And to cap it off, the people get together and they feast. And they feast in a celebration known as the Feast of Tabernacles, of booths, remembering God's provision in the wilderness. They live in tents and they remember God's deliverance. I mean, if you might remember that at the beginning of Ezra, when the first wave came back, that's the feast they celebrated. Well, here at the end, they bring that celebration back and they're celebrating and they're feasting and we're told that they share generously with each other, particularly with those who are in need. It's this awesome scene. Seven days. And then on the eighth day, in the aftermath of all this joy, in the aftermath of the acknowledgement of God's grace, the people gather together again and they confess themselves as a people, not as individuals. They confess themselves as a people before the Lord. And if you go to Nehemiah and read it, it's this honest, this exhaustive confessional prayer. It stretches all the way back over their history with God. They're not just confessing their sins for their generation, but they literally take hold and own the generations of sin going all the way back through the sons and daughters of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in this powerful, public, unified confession, the people recommit themselves to the Lord and they recommit themselves with specifics. They get detailed. This is who we are in you. This is what we're going to do. This public confession and recommittal to their relationship with the Lord. They do it with one voice. You read Nehemiah, they even put it in writing. There's a chapter where they put their names on paper. We are the people who are gathered. We are the ones who promised this. We are the ones who say it. And literally what they're saying is it's all gonna be different this time. It's gonna be different. And from all the signs, you, I mean, you, again, you read this, you immerse yourself in it. From all the signs, this looks to be the turning point for Israel. This could be the moment. And think of all the things that have been missing. It seems like they're all coming together in this moment. All the, this moment, they finally have got it all together. It looks as though this is it. The vision of the prophets that's been put out there is finally going to come into fulfillment. That they've kind of laid out the runway and now the promised Messiah will come. Their oppressors will be overthrown. This is the moment. They're no longer divided. They're united as a people. Geographically, maybe, but spiritually, they are united. And so it's time. All is ready for their restoration, for their redemption. And if you remember what the prophet said, this moment is big because not only will it be their redemption and restoration, but if it's true, if it happens, this is going to be the flowing of justice and peace for all nations. Powerful moment. But if you've read, this is not how this part of the story ends. That's not how this part of the story ends. We get to the end, in fact, of Nehemiah, and after the party's over, after the celebration, the incredible worship service, all, this thing, all these things that I've just described to you, after we discover with Ezra and Nehemiah, for all they've done, for all they've accomplished, nothing has changed. We actually get to see it through the eyes of Nehemiah specifically, but Ezra's part of it too. As Nehemiah goes out and looks at what's, has it, has, what's happened, what's taken root. 
And what Ezra sees, what Nehemiah sees, is not at all what they expected. That temple that had been rebuilt, well, it's now being neglected. The offerings and sacrifices for worship are lacking in attention to detail and in overall effort. The people aren't even paying attention to what they're bringing, if they're bringing anything. The people, once again, are just kind of going through the motions. Their heart isn't in it. The temple's been rebuilt, but the people aren't living there. And all that religious reform and Bible study that I just talked to you about, all that seven-day Bible study marathon, those religious reforms, hasn't changed how the people are living. Nehemiah walks around and people are breaking the Sabbath left and right. That may not seem like a big deal to us because we break the Sabbath all the time. And what it means to break the Sabbath is abiding in the Lord is an afterthought for them rather than their first thought. The people aren't resting in order to work. They're not trusting in the Lord's provision in order to do what they need to do. No, the people are working in order to rest, which means they don't trust God to provide what they need. So the Sabbath is ignored. And remember all those walls and gates that were rebuilt to protect the city? This cuts Nehemiah. This was his passion to the core as he walks around These gates and walls that were built for protection are now have become a means for profit. Rather than standing guard around the walls and gates of the city, the people are setting up shop. Instead of taking care of each other, looking out for each other, each person is looking to their own self-interest, trying to make a buck, looking to their own safety and security, their own well-being. And just like that, the new and improved Israel is revealed to be just as fickle just as corrupt, just as unjust as their ancestors of old. The people said all the right things. They did. They did a lot of good work together. No question, did a lot of good work together. But in the end, their hearts and minds, their practices and habits remained unchanged. Ezra and Nehemiah are so devastated by what they see. They are so shocked by how everything turns out. They both individually refuse to accept it. No, no. No, they will not accept what they see. Both men on their own decide to take things a step further. They both orchestrate separate actions to set things right. No, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna set this right. And as I tell you what they did, even though we can step aside and say they did it with the best of intentions, right? They wanted to set things right, even though they did it with the best of intentions. What I'm about to tell you that they each did cannot help but leave us scratching our heads and saying, what were they thinking? Ezra and Nehemiah take matters into their own hands. Ezra, for his part, Ezra on his own, without any divine sanction, no counsel from prayer, which was his custom, meaning he didn't consult the Lord on this. This is something he did on his own. Ezra suddenly initiates a massive community-wide divorce proceeding. All the Israelite men who have married foreign wives are to divorce them ASAP, immediately cast them aside along with any children born of their marriage. This literally happened. The righteousness of what just, I've just described to you, let alone the logic of what Ezra attempts to do, of this mandate by Ezra, it stands in contradiction to the justice demanded by the prophets. One prophet in particular, Malachi, who was a contemporary, he was speaking around the same time of Ezra. Malachi, in his book, specifically restates God's concerns about, God's lament over, and therefore God's word against divorce. Ezra is not acting on God's behalf. 
even with the best of intentions. Nehemiah, <laughs> Nehemiah for his part, just chooses to go on a rampage. That's literally what happens. He does, that's the only way you can describe it. Nehemiah just blows a gasket, starts going out in the streets among the people and beating people up. I'm serious. He literally starts grabbing people and beating people up. You know when you get frustrated how we say you're going to pull out your hair? Nehemiah doesn't pull out his own hair. He starts ripping other people's hair out. He rages at them. He's calling down curses at them. Can you imagine this wild man coming through, grabbing people and beating them up? He grabs them and starts shouting, Obey the Torah! Obey the Torah! Follow God! And can you not be surprised that ultimately he drives everyone away? Nehemiah's final words in his book are, are basically these. I did my part. I did my part. The heck with them, Lord. The heck with them. And that's the conclusion of the Old Testament. The opening half story of the Bible ends not with a heavenly crescendo, but everything comes to close with a giant thud. It's all one big anticlimax, isn't it? It's shocking. It's startling. It's, you almost want to just go, let's get to the Jesus part. <laughs> but there it is. You can't ignore it. And it goes without saying this is not the ending Ezra and Nehemiah were hoping for. The disturbing silence that follows the end of Nehemiah, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's going to be 400 years between the last word in Nehemiah and the first word of the gospel. The disturbing silence that follows this period of time that makes the time of the exile feel like the blink of an eye. This divine silence that will last 400 years, don't kid yourself, this is not an intermission the people of Israel were expecting either. And we see, we can hear their collective frustration in this back and forth dialogue that makes up the, book, the bulk of the book of the last prophet of the Old Testament, the aforementioned Malachi. Malachi, who I talked about before. As a brief aside, I still remember my time living on the East Coast. <laughs> you probably have heard this before, but I'm just going to share this. This one guy who just was so excited that there finally was an Italian prophet in the Bible, which makes no sense, by the way. And I said, what do you mean an Italian prophet? Malachi. <laughs> Malachi. And he was dead serious, by the way. And I said, it's not Malachi, it's Malachi. He's like, oh, I don't know, I think it's Malachi. And, and, and again, if you read Malachi, part of also why I'm sharing this with you is he had read it, to his credit, he didn't just look at the title, and said, man, Malachi's pretty feisty, and we Italians are feisty. <laughs> Malachi. We hear the frustration of the people at this ending point of the story through the book of Malachi. And if you haven't read the book of Malachi, it's well worth your read. It's a fascinating read. This is how it plays out. The book of, the Mal of Malachi is basically an ongoing argument between the Lord and the people of Israel. And the way it works is God makes his case, then Israel will dispute God's point of view, and then God will offer his rebuttal. This is the back and forth of the dialogue. God makes his case, Israel disputes his point of view, and then God makes his rebuttal. And in that conversation, in the book of Malachi, the Lord starts by reasserting his unfailing devotion to his people. He says, I love you, even as you disregard and dishonor your relationship with me. And Israel, on the other hand, questions the evidence of this love the Lord supposedly has for them. They can't see it. They don't feel it. Malachi, as I said, is this fascinating read because finally at one point, it's like you know it's like what people always wanted to say. Finally at one point, the people of Israel just come out in the prophet Malachi and accuse God of doing nothing for them. You do nothing for us. 
You do nothing. You ever been there? You ever said that? Ever felt it? You do nothing for me. Maybe you find yourself in that place today. That state of mind, you know, that condition of the heart in relationship to God. You know what I mean? Gobsmacked, you ever been there? Devastated, you ever felt that? Frustrated, are you frustrated this morning? Have you found yourself just where you're like, you're moving, but really spiritually you're paralyzed? Gobsmacked, devastated, frustrated, paralyzed, you do nothing for me and you feel that way, that's how your life is, all because you haven't got the ending you were hoping for. This is not the ending we were hoping for. Maybe for you today, it's that ending is you didn't get into that college or that special program or you didn't get accepted into that new job you applied to. Maybe for you, it's that loan you didn't get, that home you didn't qualify for, that raise you couldn't manage to secure. Maybe for you this morning, that ending that you weren't hoping for is that diagnosis, that surgical outcome, that test result you didn't get. Maybe it's that legal decision. Maybe it's that settlement offer. Maybe it's that insurance claim. Maybe it's that investment return you failed to receive. Or maybe it's that return phone call. That answered question, you know? Maybe it's that second date you didn't get asked on. Maybe it's that reciprocated hospitality. You know, that simple acknowledgement. Maybe it's that confession. Maybe it's that apology you were looking for. Maybe that amends you didn't get. Maybe it's that long-desired word of forgiveness you've been working for and that renewed friendship that you were banking on that never came. How, 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 how are we to live? When the result, the ending we worked for doesn't happen. Part of the problem is revealed in this question. In how we actually perceive our lives to work. Paul Ehrlich was a German physicist and scientist. He uh, was a cancer researcher specifically. Paul Ehrlich is, while doing cancer research, coined the term, you probably don't know who he is, but you probably heard the term he coined. The term he coined was the magic bullet. And he coined that term, the magic bullet, to refer to what he hoped to discover. He hoped to discover a drug or treatment that would cure the disease of cancer quickly and easily without producing any bad side effects. The phrase, the magic bullet, has caught on, as you probably know, and has been expanded in its use in our lives to describe the one thing people believe will help them solve their problem, to achieve their goals, to accomplish the end result to which they're, they're working. We're all looking for the magic bullet. Beloved Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and the people of Israel were looking for their magic bullet too. Rebuilding the temple, that's going to do it. Reinstituting rigorous and extensive religious reforms, that'll be the way. 
Fortifying the walls and those gates, that's what it's all about. That's going to make it happen. These are the things, the temple, the Torah, revival, the walls, that's going to pull the trigger. They worked long and hard. They worked long and hard to bring Israel back to her former glory and to take her into her promised and even better future. But the thing is, it was never about what they did. It was never about what they did or even what they could do. It was always about what the Lord did, what only God could do. It was never about a few external alterations, as nice as they were. It was never about an extreme national makeover, as, as it were. It never is about an extreme national makeover. It is always about, as the prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel told them, told us as they proclaimed, it is always about a holistic, internal transformation of the human heart, mind, and soul. And that kind of change, that sort of salvation, that ending, was always and still is the kind, the sort, the grand finale that only the Lord can deliver. Only God. I told you that the people accused God of doing nothing for them through the prophet Malachi, but God gets the last word in the prophet Malachi. And through the prophet Malachi, the Lord responds to Israel's accusation that he is a do-nothing kind of God. And through Malachi, he reminds them, he reminds us that he has given them, that he has given us his word I have given you my word. And that's a loaded term right there. We need to unpack that. I have given you my word. What do we mean by my word? What do we mean by God giving us his word? Well, the Lord has given us his word. And by his word, the Lord has spoken this universe and our lives into being. God has given us literally his word. We live and breathe by the word of God. But it's more than that. God has given us through his word, through his word, the Lord has revealed to us. This is what this entire journey through the story has been about, if you've missed it. The Lord, through his word, has revealed to us the way it is. God has given us his word, and through his word, he has shown us the reality of our human condition, our broken disposition towards selfishness and therefore sin. God has revealed to us the way it is, not only the reality of our human condition, but simultaneously the revelation of his character as our father, that this God, he is loving, gracious and forgiving, but unwavering in truth, righteousness and justice. God has given us his word to reveal the way it is and he has revealed the reality of our human condition and the revelation of his character but he has also given us the anticipation of the fulfillment of his promises. God has given us his word and he has told us that we can bank that he will keep his word to us. He will keep his word to us even when we forget, even when we fail to keep our word to him. But it goes even deeper than that. God gives us his word. And we can point and pick up what you're holding in your hands right now. The Lord gives us literally his word to read, to study, to remember. The word of God is given to us to point us to the past, to remember where he has always been so that we can recognize him in the present where he is and so we can be assured of our future where he will always be. At the end of Malachi, God just gets really excited. 
And in talking about the gift of his word, God then says, the day is coming. God says through the prophet Malachi, the day is coming. My day, God says. My day, the day of the Lord. And on that day, in my time, it will not be more of the same. It will be something completely different. And here at the end of the first half of the story, we begin to get whispers, <coughs> allusions to what comes next. As the God who gives us his word begins to hint that the word will become flesh. That the author of our very being will enter the very story of our lives. That the king of kings will come down and become servant of all. That the long-awaited savior will become the long-suffering scapegoat. And the scapegoat will become the lamb of God who overcomes the world by taking away all our sins. The principalities and powers of evil will melt before this son of righteousness. The Lord of life will silence the gaping jaws of death. Beloved, this is the next part of the story that we'll look at in the fall. But until we get there, and count yourselves lucky that we don't have to wait 400 years, before we get there, we need to remember where we're sitting, where we are, while we wait for that next part to begin, that this one we have been waiting for has already come. Our God has come to us in Jesus Christ. That's why we're here. I hope that's why you're here. I hope you sit in that reality. Our God has come to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the promised wounded victor who we have been hearing about all through the first part of the story. He is the one who has crushed the head of the snake of sin, death, and the devil, who has defeated them all by willingly receiving the death blow of their fangs from the cross. Christ has come. And he is still coming. Coming once and for all to set things right, all that is wrong, to redeem all that has been lost, and to make all things new do you know that story now? Are you living that story? Beloved, we come to the end of the first part of the story and what you can't walk away and not see is Israel forgot who the author was. Israel forgot who was writing the story, the story of their lives. Do we remember? Do you remember? Or are you still trying to write your own story? Are you still trying to craft your own narrative? How long will you keep trying to write your own story instead of living into and out of this story, your story, our story, the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's this relationship that you're a part of. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's not something to hang on to when you die. It's an invitation now to live the only story there is, the only story that's true, the only story that will last, the only story that ends and they lived happily ever after. The ending you're hoping for, whatever it is, the ending you're hoping for, the one you're trying to craft on your own, the ending you're really hoping for, if you really get down to it, the ending you're hoping for is one you can't work for. It's one you can't earn. It's one you can't accomplish. Only God can. Only God has. Only God will in Jesus Christ. It's not about the work we do. It's not about the work we do. 
Hear that and be set free. It's not about the work we do. It's about the play we are invited to experience together. Somewhere along the way, kids, we give them the freedom to play, and then all of a sudden you have to grow up and you have to work. And that's not God's way. That's our way. God doesn't invite us to work. God invites us to play. We're invited to play. We're invited to share the fruit of the Spirit. We're invited to share the riches of the kingdom. That's what we're about. And yet so many of us are so committed to working. Because if we're really honest, we think working's gonna save us. Working's gonna make a name for us. Working is gonna be where it's at. And if you talk to people who've retired, if you've talked to people who've worked all their lives, ask them if they believe that gospel anymore. You go to the graveyard, you look at the tombstones, ask the dead what all their work amounts to now. You get to play. You get to play. And church, we hear this story and we gotta be careful not to be like Ezra and Nehemiah we got to be careful not to be like Ezra and Nehemiah with the best of intentions. And some of us have the best of intentions, right? With the best of intentions, we got to be careful not to take matters into our own hands in order to tailor the ending ourselves. We sit here as the church and we don't like what we see going out on in the world. We don't like what we hear. We're not going to have Christianity silenced. We refuse to be persecuted. We're going to stand up for our rights. We're going to let people know Jesus is real. We're going to give them the gospel. We're going to make them understand there is no other God but Jesus Christ. How many people want to meet a Nehemiah? Beloved, there's no need for us to force the gospel. There's no need to cram it down other people's throat or shove it in their faces. If the gospel is true, if the gospel is true, if Jesus is risen and living, then God will always get the last word. You don't need to get it for him. God will always get the last word and the story will bear out just as the Lord intended it to. You don't have to cram it. You don't have to shove it. You don't have to force it. We get to live it. We get to live it. So this morning, you're sitting here, whether you're beginning college or nearly finishing, whether you're between jobs or maybe you're just starting one, whether you're looking to get married, man, you want to get married and you want to start a family, or maybe you're in the midst of just trying to find the balance between the two, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking about retirement, or perhaps you're starting to wonder if there's anything after retirement, wherever you are, whatever ending is in front of you, don't be afraid. Don't get frustrated. Don't give up when the ending you receive isn't the one you hoped for. Take heart this morning in knowing that it is when we reach the end of ourselves when we reach the end of our plans, of our effort, of our work, it is when we reach the end of ourselves that we discover God, our Father, is only just beginning to work, to redeem, to heal, to transform us. So live your life. Hear the word of the Lord this morning and live your life, but don't live it on your own terms. Live your life out of the confidence in the Lord's desires and will for you in Jesus Christ. Make your plans. Leave this morning. Make your plans. But make your plans prayerfully, submitting them, yielding them, and even maybe adjusting them. 
through the Spirit's revelation of the story being written through you, of your God-given gifts, resources, opportunities, and relationships. Inhabit each moment, seize the day. Grab it by the horns, inhabit each moment, seize the day, but anticipate the conclusion of each season as it comes and finish well by not trying to orchestrate it all. Because the thing is, you can't control everything. In fact, late-breaking newsflash, you really don't control anything. Because, beloved, this is God's story. This is God's story. And however things go, all of it, all of it will be his ending. The Lord always gets the last word. And we wouldn't want it any other way, would we? Because in the end, if we're in Christ, it's never the end. In the end, if we're in Christ, it's never the end. When our time comes, whether it's the next season of this life we're in right now, or whether we're turning the page into the next chapter of eternity, Jesus always goes before us. We ride on his coattails, freed by his forgiveness, walking by faith, empowered by his grace, and reflecting his spirit of love to all who are watching. It's not our story to write, it's his. And we are blessed because he is writing his story in and through us. He is writing his story with us in mind, with us, with him at the end. Amen.